0: welcome back to the podcast this is Cameron and you're listening to the nursing crash cart episode 7 back in episode one I did sort of warn that I I didn't have a timetable for this though I certainly didn't mean for it to be this long between podcasts um, I've had to make podcasting fall a little bit lower on my priority list until I could dedicate uh, more time to it as I've been kind of busy with Uh, Mostly like career-related tasks as of late. Uh, Where I work, we are swapping to the Epic EMR system for our entire organization. So I've been doing uh, super user classes, helping with uh, go-lives at other hospitals within our organization, and then prepping for our go-live later this summer. I'm also back in school. Um, with the goal of the acute care N.P. degree. Uh, I just finished a semester, so I've got a few weeks off, and I wanted to get a bunch of episodes recorded so I can hopefully kind of uh, release them at a steady interval for the rest of 2015. Obviously, I'm not going to be able to record them all in this couple of weeks, but I want to get a few kind of banged out here. That way um, I can keep a steady stream of these coming. Um, I've kind of missed being able to do these. Uh, before I get into the episode today, I want to thank everybody for the emails. When I started, uh, you know, making this podcast, uh, you know, as I, I mentioned before, it's kind of my cathartic outlet to get stuff out of my head and out into the world without making my coworkers kill me. So um, it's it's mostly been kind of a way to try to express the the topics that I try to cover while precepting new hires in a of uh, slightly more organized fashion. Uh, I really appreciate the emails telling me about uh, something specific that helped from the podcasts or that how they helped solidify a desire to become an ED nurse or help with a transition from another unit to the ED. And I'm just so glad that I could be a small part of that. I honestly did not expect to have as much communication um, come my way via email over these podcasts. And if I have not replied to, um, an email that you have sent me, I promise it was not done as a slight to you. Um, but just because I have been kind of completely taken aback at the, um, unexpected number of emails that I've received getting kind of back into the swing of the podcasting bit here. I want to become, I I want this in general to become kind of a larger priority again. And I want to do better at make sure I'm replying to every single person who communicates with me. So, so do keep the emails coming. And I, I'm trying to get better at making sure I reply back to you, even if it's um, something, you know, short and answering as many questions as I can. Um, overwhelmingly, there's been a lot of comments uh, wanting episodes on codes. I think that's absolutely fantastic. I think, um, having a wide knowledge base regarding um, ACLS or PALS um, and, and what to do in code situations is something that every ED nurse should have in their strong suit category. Um, but I, I don't think we can necessarily jump right in to, okay, here's a code, kind of a podcast without some, some really background information first. So I've been thinking about how to best present all this information since things like rhythm strips, um, rhythm interpretation is very visual and podcasting, uh, you know, by and large is, is not a visual media. Um, so I've debated, you know, what what the best way is, um, like either with like a PDF or something that would go along with it as like a supplemental material, um, like you know, reference image B1 now or something, that kind of a deal. But I, I don't think that's going to be the best way. I have kind of decided that how, how I'd like to kind of go with this is probably doing like screencasts or or video podcasts or video casts um, for any of the episodes that involve rhythm interpretation. So this way, if you are you know driving to work or something, you can still listen. And then if you're on break or have some time to kill, you can actually watch with the screen of your device and actually see the, um, the video and the reference strips or whatever that I'd be talking about at that time. Um, but, you know, this way... You don't have to have something else printed out to be able to to reference it if you if you're using this um, or listening to this on a, on a handheld device. Um, you know, obviously, I don't um, I don't condone people listening or um, trying to watch video casts while driving. But this way, if you you know had that time to kill, you could do so. Um, you know, then for um, kind of like the finale of this this little small series of episodes. Would be a, an actual code episode where we would do scenarios, kind of similar to like what you would do in ACLS, like a, a mega code kind of concept, where you'd walk through step by step from like a stable to an unstable patient, um, back you know then to cardiac arrest, all the way back to return of spontaneous circulation, and then post arrest care. So you know, look for some episodes um, coming as soonish. Um, regarding things like sinus rhythms and then atrial dysrhythmias um, and ventricular dysrhythmias. I, I'm debating if I should do anything on junctional um, dysrhythmias or junctional rhythms in general. Um, I may add it to either the atrial or ventricular dysrhythmias, depending on how much information I want to throw into either of those podcasts. And then I'll probably do an episode on like pharmacology for ACLS drugs and then an actual code episode. This particular episode is going to kind of be um, an, uh, some ancillary material that you, that's going to be required for that. Um, we're going to talk about some kind of precursor pharmacology. So we'll cover drugs that are used around the intubation process, including like things like sedation and analgesia for those critical patients. So if this is your first episode, welcome and thank you for joining us. I will have some information at the end of this episode that will talk about ways you can contact me, subscribe to the podcast, follow me on social media, uh, etc. So if you have any comments, questions, or ideas of what you'd like to hear in future episodes, you can get that information to me. So intubation um, is performed on the critically ill patient to protect their airway and then to allow either a ventilator or, you know, bag valve mask to assist with or completely take over breathing for the patient. While there are plenty of stories floating around the internet of like a hot shot nurse, grabbing the tube from a a shaking resident and saving the day. And there are states that allow RNs to intubate within their scope of practice. Um, We're going to work with the assumption today in the podcast that placing the endotracheal tube will be done by the physician or by the medics in the field. And there are a zillion episodes that can be done around managing an airway, either pre-intubation or during intubation or post-intubation. And so we're not going to try to touch on any of that. We're going to try to just discuss the medications that we use to assist with intubation and then how we can best keep um, our patient comfortable after the intubation is complete. So intubation uh, intubation medications fall under two general categories. You have your your general anesthetics and then your paralytics. The ED will either use a, a rapid sequence intubation protocol. Um, or a delayed sequence intubation protocol, or or maybe both. Um, you probably won't hear it called as a rapid sequence, but just RSI, that rapid sequence intubation, or maybe even DSI if your facility uses um, delayed sequence as well. And both have absolutely appropriate uses in the ED, and it's important to know what's performed at your facility and then to understand how to implement that protocol when needed. In an ideal situation, we are preparing to intubate the patient while they are still awake um, so that they can communicate. Uh, They're still protecting their own airway enough that we can give them the best possible chance for a successful first pass intubation. Uh, Because of the rapid onset and the extreme effects of the medications that we use for RSI, we don't ever push them without the entire team being ready to intubate. And it's only done when the physician managing the airway um, kind of gives you that go-ahead. So you say, are you ready for, you know, the etomidate? Uh, this case is one of the general anesthetics that we would use. So are you ready for the etomidate? And they, they nod, you make sure everybody else on the team is ready, and then you go ahead and push. Um, you're going to hear over and over again by nurses that you will always push the anesthetic, before the paralytic because you don't want to paralyze somebody who's actually still awake enough to realize that they are paralyzed it's an absolutely frightening experience for them however you also need to understand um, the onsets of the medications that you're giving and the length of time or the duration that they're going to provide the airway doc to get the endotracheal tube in place so knowing both their onsets as well as their typical durations are important because while that rule of pushing the anesthetic first is a good one, um, in a particularly difficult patient, the order may be swapped. And we'll talk about that a little bit later in the episode. Um, so we're going to kind of start backwards. Um, rather than talking about our anesthetics first, We'll go and talk about our paralytics, as we tend to use only a handful of these in the ED. Now, there are two classifications for your neuromuscular blockers. And those are your, your paralytics, and that's depolarizing and non-depolarizing. Now, your depolarizing ones, that, that's easy. That's succinylcholine, or frequently just called succs. Um, that is probably the most commonly used paralytic in the emergency department, and we'll discuss that one a good amount today because there are some important things you need to know about it, specifically because it is the only depolarizing neuromuscular blocker. Our other um, type, those non-depolarizing paralytics, the ones we use the most um, from that class are rocuronium and vecuronium, or ROC and VEC. So jumping back to our depolarizing with succinylcholine, um, the reason why it's probably the most frequently used is that it is the fastest acting with the shortest duration. So the nice thing is if you need to get somebody intubated quickly, you can get the medications in fast and have the desired effect fast. The other nice part about it is if you are having difficulties and the first pass was unsuccessful and you need to set up to try again, um, the patient's going to be coming back out of it and you're not just keeping a patient paralyzed while their anesthetic's wearing off. So kind of giving some some general information regarding the, the pharmacology of it. Your onset is is around the 30 to 60 second mark. And if you give it intramuscular instead of by IV, it's going to be longer in the, in the two to three minute range. Duration wise, um, normally going to last in the two to 10 minute range. Um, typically more on the higher end of that, not necessarily really on that low two minute end. Um, and if you give it intramuscular, you're looking more in the 10 minute to 30 minute range for um the paralysis that, that would that's occurring. Now your dose for succinylcholine is in the um you know, kinda of, kind of depending on what it's for. Um, in the anywhere from like 0.3 to 1.1 milligrams per kilogram. And that's if you're doing it more for less emergent situations. When we are doing RSI and we need to get the patient intubated right then, right now, we kind of go a little bit stronger than that. Um, you can kind of go like 1.5 um, all the way up to like f- uh, 4 megs per kg IM. Um, but anywhere from like the um, you know, one point five all the way up to about two ish or so when you're doing IV. The the kind of normal go ahead dose is around a hundred milligrams of succinylcholine. Like you'll the, the the kind of normal dose for the average quote unquote seventy pound typical or seventy kilogram typical patient is twenty of atomide, a hundred of succinylcholine. So they'll say you know drop a uh, twenty of atomide, hundred of succs, and those would be your two um, RSI medications. So, what what are the difficulties? What are we concerned about with succinylcholine? And why are we discussing because it's a, a depolarizing wheel? What does that mean in the scheme of things? So, being a depolarizing neuromuscular blocker, succinylcholine, when it depolarizes the cells, it allows potassium to go from intracellular into the serum. Now, when it's a serum-level potassium, and you're increasing that during depolarization, you have a small area, a small time period where that potassium can spike. And now, as you know, or may know, or will be finding out, your body is very, very sensitive when it comes to potassium levels. If you are not in that normal range of about 3.5 to 5, um, you can cause severe cardiac side effects in particular we're concerned about dysrhythmias things like ventricular fibrillation or ventricular tachycardia so as as your potassium rises some things that you may notice if you um, are looking at a cardiac monitor is that the t-wave will sometimes become very tempted or spiked it's almost going to be higher than the QRS complex now, there are some places out there that will tell you if it's you know this tall, it means the potassium is this level. If it's this tall, it means the potassium is this level. Ignore that. There is no hard and fast rule about how big a T-wave is or how tinted it is or spiked it is that, that's going to directly correlate to a potassium level. Just know that if you're starting off and you already see that the T-waves are peaked in this patient and you're assuming they may be hyperkalemic at that point succinylcholine is probably not going to be your neuromuscular blocker of choice and that is because you don't want to raise that potassium level any higher than it already is increasing that chance of a cardiac dysrhythmia so what kind of patients are we going to be concerned about they're going to be hyperkalemic first and foremost and one you'll see a lot of in the ED are your renal patients. Chronic renal failure, acute renal failure, dialysis patients that have missed their dialysis sessions, those patients are frequently going to have elevated potassium levels. So if we then push succinylcholine and jump that up a little bit more, um, the chances of their you know sinus rhythm going into something besides a sinus rhythm um, increases and we don't want to do that we like to keep our patients alive so um, other types of patients that you would be concerned about are going to be crush injuries so anything with a trauma where there was um, a, like a leg that got trapped or anything it was there's an impingement of a limb um, or part of a body when that gets released that all those crushed cells release that potassium and release that those destroyed uh, blood cells And they can, A, screw up your kidneys, causing uh, rhabdomyolysis, um, as well as um, release lots of potassium into the body. And you will sometimes find that crush injuries, when medics bring them in, they will have um, proximal to the crush injury, a tourniquet in place. And that is um, with the concept of trying to prevent a rush of potassium um, coming back in towards the heart. So it kind of impedes the venous return um, from the body or from that particular limb that may be affected. Um, your other big patients that you're going to be concerned about with high potassium levels. It's kind of similar to crush injury in the, in the mechanism in which we're, we're seeing a rise in potassium. Um, but the method in which it gets there is a little bit different. And those are your burn patients. Um, so burns in general. Um, are going to cause that that same kind of release of uh, potassium from the destroyed cells. So having that that rise in potassium, again, making them hyperkalemic, um, again, makes them kind of poor candidates for succinylcholine. Um, So your other contraindications are going to be um, if somebody has a pretty significant history of malignant hyperthermia, and that's that very adverse reaction to your anesthetics, um, succinylcholine is frequently not used. And then, lastly, because of that depolarization, succinylcholine kind of has two phases that you'll it will go through. Uh, the first phase um, is the, depolarav- de- sorry, excuse me, the depolarization phase, um, which causes Uh, Muscular fasciculations or little twitches. And then the phase two um, is the desensitizing phase, at which point it no longer has those fasciculations and the patient is actually fully paralyzed. The the theoretical concern with the fasciculations um, is that it can cause an increase in intracranial and intraocular pressure. So if the patient is a head injury, or you're concerned about increased ICP, um, some physicians, based on what literature they, they have read or believe in, um, may not want to use succinylcholine for that as well. All right, so then we have rock and VEC. Now, I'm not going to touch too much on Vecuronium because really um, it's a medication that normally comes as a powder, so you have to reconstitute it. Um, it's a very uh, tiny... Um, dosing that you use, so a lot of the times it's it's not the the next best go to drug after succinylcholine. Normally, um, is rocuronium, and rock is pretty much used whenever succinylcholine is contraindicated. So the biggest difference you're going to see between rock and sucks is that their onset and their duration are significantly different. Um, rather than that. Um, you know that quick onset with succinylcholine. Rocuronium can take anywhere from about a minute to a minute and a half, all the way up to about two minutes um, to really have that desired paralytic effect. And in terms of how long it lasts, like it dur- its duration, um, it can be upwards of an hour. Um, and now, typically, it's it's less than that, but it's you shouldn't be surprised if a patient you know is not breathing um, above a ventilator setting. If you are are breathing for the patient, you know, twelve times a minute, and the machine just shows only those twelve breaths it's giving, and nothing that the patient is breathing on their own, um, and it's been you know twenty, thirty minutes after the patient's been intubated, that's probably a just still a, a um, factor of the rocuronium, and that's just because it's still keeping the patient paralyzed, because um, it just lasts that long. So if you have a failed Um, intubation attempt, you want to have your secondary or tertiary um, methods or plans ready to go and in place because this patient's going to be paralyzed for quite a while and you can't just stand there and keep them bagged forever. So you need to be able to get into the lungs if you can't do it by visualization of the cords and they can't do it through, you know, video uh, laryngoscopy laryngoscopy by, um, um, any, any other kind of means then they need to crike this patient and then need to get inside the neck and get an airway so your typical doses for rock um normally kind of around the one milligram per kilogram mark so in your your ideal quote unquote um, you know 70 kilogram patient you're looking at about 70 milligrams. Uh, but your your overall dose can be anywhere from about 0.6 to 1.2 milligrams per kilogram. So then we're scoot backwards um, from our paralytics and go back to our general anesthetics. The first one is Atomidate, and we love Atomidate because it is a super quick acting anesthetic. Normal onset is in the 10 to 15 second range. So very shortly after you've pushed it and you've flushed it in there it's already taking effect with the patient. Um, Duration for Atomidate is in the 4 to 10 minute range. Um, So once you've pushed it and then you switch to your paralytic, depending on how long your paralytic takes for that onset, um, that's how much uh, of a window you're going to have left to be able to have that good first pass intubation, which is again why you wouldn't necessarily always push your general anesthetic first. Things like your rock uranium, when you're pushing that because it has that delayed onset, um, some physicians are okay with uh, pushing rock immediately followed by atomidate. That way, you're kind of just giving a little bit of extra time with, the, with both medications having taken effect. So the paralytic is going to be working instead of being a minute after the atomidate is in. And maybe it's only going to be 30 ish seconds after the Atomidate is in uh, before it is full on paralyzed the patient um, with the general anesthetic having already taken effect, uh, giving them a, a little bit of a wider window to perform that first pass intubation. So we pretty much use um, Atomidate, like I said, for n- nearly every single RSI that you, pr- you do in the ED. Um, it also has a pretty Basic dosing with your normal adult patients, 20 is pretty much a standard dose. So 20 milligrams of atomidate The nice thing is, is that the way it comes with two milligrams per milliliter, you're going to fill up a 10 ml syringe with atomidate and that's your 20. So it makes it nice and easy to, to draw up and be accurate with in a higher intensity situation. Um, and then beyond that, it does have a little bit of a like a, a 0.3 mg per kg dosing range. What we're kind of kind of looking not range, but a dosing um, amount. So if it's a bit of a, a more generously sized person, they go up to about 30 milligrams. I've never seen doses go above that, and it's only in patients that are small, like your pediatric range. Does atomide normally get below? Uh, 20 milligrams, but the average adult being in the you know 140 to 170 ish kind of range for their weight in pounds translates close to that 70 kilogram mark, which is around where 20 milligrams of atomidate um, hits 4.3 milligrams per kilogram. The other big reason why atomidate is sometimes not used is depending on what your physician has read or believes in firmly regarding the adrenal insufficiency or adrenal suppression that Atomidate causes. Um, So there's sometimes concern that in septic patients, um, this may be too much of a detriment for long-term care. While we're not going to necessarily treat adrenal suppression in the emergency department, going over what medications you used for intubation whenever you hand off this patient to a critical care unit um, will be important. So beyond etomidate, what else do we use? Well, the other big one that people know and love is propofol. That's your, you know, your Michael Jackson juice or milk of amnesia. It's the white medication in the glass bottle. Um, So... We also love Propofol because it is also a very fast-acting medication, and similar to Etomidate, it also has a very short duration, so when you use this as a drip for long-term sedation, it's nice because if you want to kind of wake a person up, you pause the drip, and a couple minutes later, boom, they're coming back out of it, so That onset for propofol is just a smidge longer than Etomidate in the 15 to 40, 45-ish second range with its duration in the 5 to 10 minute range. Your normal dosing for propofol when you're using it for induction like RSI is about 1.5 milligrams per kilogram. When are you going to use propofol versus Etomidate? You know, it's more kind of a physician preference. It may be in that kind of septic patient Um, because they wanted to steer away from adrenal suppression. Um, But you really only want to use it with hemodynamically stable patients. Um, So anybody who is currently hypotensive, um, use caution when using propofol. Uh, Propofol does tend to have a very profound effect on blood pressure. So if somebody's pressure is already in the toilet, and then you give them propofol, uh, you may drop their pressure so low that you will send them into cardiac arrest. Um, again, the nice thing is it is very, very short acting, which is why they also like it um, for conscious sedations too. I, I've never really seen Atomide used for conscious sedations um, because you can kind of give larger doses of propofol and just kind of keep titrating as you need for a desired sedative effect. When doing conscious sedations, but for for the purpose of intubation, um it's pretty much that it, I, I rarely see propofol use. Some there are a couple of physicians that just love it in general, and they will use it um, pretty much on, on every single patient except when they're they're very hemodynamically unstable. So in the hemodynamically unstable patient, we use ketamine, and ketamine is fantastic because not only Does it have a general anesthetic to it? Um, It also has analgesic properties. So it is the only of these three that we're talking about that also treats pain. Uh, People get sucked into the concept of, oh, they're sedated. We're taking care of their pain. No, no, you haven't. Sedation does not equal analgesia. The obvious now exception to this is ketamine because it has both. So the other positive that we like with ketamine is that it causes something called a sympathetic surge. So when you're hemodynamically unstable patient, like your are um, hypovolemic or hemorrhaging patient um, or a septic shock patient where you have some kind of a distributive shock, there's a lack of fluid, a lack of pump, and you have a, a hypotensive state ketamine, with that sympathetic surge it provides, is going to increase their blood pressure and increase their heart rate. So because of that, not only are we allowing ourselves to sedate this patient and get them intubated, but we're kind of temporarily fixing part of their poor cardiac output and hypoperfusion, that shock-like state, with this sympathetic surge. So that's why we love ketamine on those super sick patients. Um, Ketamine and propofol are typically also used for your conscious sedation kind of patients where you may have like a kid with a a displaced or dislocated shoulder or elbow or something and you want to get it popped back into place. Um, Those are the medications that we tend to like to use. We especially like it in kids, though some physicians are very wary to use it Because of something called emergence delirium. Now, that's not really going to be the case or what we're going to be concerned about with intubation, but with because these medications are frequently used for conscious sedations as well. We'll touch on this a little bit. Um, Ketamine kind of causes a disassociated state. And some people have very um, very lucid hallucinations when they're coming out of it, and this emergent delirium can be very profound in people if they have mental health disorders as well. Um, so they may have, be very agitated or very combative coming out of a a ketamine um, induced anesthetic state. So sometimes they'll give like a benzodiazepine along with it, but I've always found that if you just keep a nice, kind of calm environment and you have like the parents at the bedside still just kind of talking, you know, supportively and positively with the kid as they're kind of coming out of it, I- I've rarely seen issues with it. Getting back to using ketamine for intubation, um, your normal dose is in the one to two milligrams per kilogram gram range. So about one and a half is kind of your norm. The, the fun little bit with that is anything below one milligram, I'm pretty sure it's anything below one milligram, is considered your analgesic dosing. So sometimes in patients that are just nothing's working for pain, they may try ketamine as just an analgesic. So they may give like 0.4 milligrams per kilogram of IV push or IM um, ketamine just to help with pain. So there's a fun little fact to kind of keep there in the back of your head. So those are our three kind of normal medications we use for a general anesthetic. Okay, so now we have an intubated patient. We gave our anesthetic. We gave our paralytic. The physician did a wonderful first pass intubation. And now we need to worry about keeping this patient comfortable. Current literature supports what's called sedation by analgesia first or analgesia first sedation. This means that rather than throwing a patient right onto a propofol drip or a Versed drip to keep them sedated, perhaps we should try just an analgesic. Now, whenever we have a critically ill patient that we've had to intubate, our analgesia of choice is going to be fentanyl. So a fentanyl drip is fantastic in that we can easily titrate it. We can give bolus doses either through IV push or depending on what pumps you use at your facility. You can also bolus right from the the fentanyl drip bag into the patient. And then if the fentanyl itself is not getting the job done, then you can look at adding a general anesthetic on top of it. What these studies are finding is that patients who go in on Versed or Propofol or any kind of a general anesthetic drip to keep them sedated throughout their stay on a ventilator, they're having increased days on the ventilator, which means it's more difficult to liberate them from the intubation and getting them back to breathing without the support of the ventilator. It's also providing um, increases in ICU delirium. So those are two very good reasons why analgesia first sedation should be your first choice when um, in the, looking at sedating a a patient who has just been intubated. Now, just because we are using fentanyl and trying to do this analgesia first does not tie our hands. It does not mean that we can't use a general anesthetic on top of it, but by starting with that, we can try to decrease those days on the ventilator and that chance for ICU delirium. So with fentanyl if if we're giving boluses at steady intervals and we have a, a decently highly high dose that we've titrated to and the patient's still not comfortable where they're still bucking against the vent and they're they're biting on their tube and they just they we can't get them into a state that's that's appears comfortable that's going when we're going to be um, adding medications on top of this. Um ICUs, at least where around where I work, love just going right to benzos and they will use like a versed drip. Um, Sometimes, depending on what your setup is at your hospital or what your physicians prefer, you may not always use versed. Um, We have propofol readily available, so as long as the patient is still normal or hypertensive after intubation, um propofol will probably be our go-to drug. The other one that we're going to obviously use was the one I had mentioned before was ketamine Um, because it provides both that analgesia and sedative effect. um, It's fantastic in those critically ill patients because we can try to keep their pain under control, keep them sedated, but not make them more hypotensive than they already are. So those are the kind of your three big parts um, that we wanted to talk about today, the the general anesthetics, your paralytics, and then what you're using for post-intubation, um, sedation, and analgesia. So I hope you found part of this episode um, helpful. Um, if you want to know more about this podcast, you can check it out at edcrashcart.com. If you want to subscribe to the podcast, you can find me in iTunes or Stitcher uh, at the Nursing Crash Cart. If you want to send me an email, I am at edcrashcart at gmail.com. And lastly, if you want to follow me on Twitter to hear about additional episodes or shoot me a message on there as well and tweet my direction, I am at edcrashcart. So this is Cameron saying goodbye for now. I will be seeing you again in the the much near future compared to when uh, the previous episode hit Uh, but for now I want to say goodbye and uh, hope you have a great and fantastic nurses week that's coming up um, actually, by the time this episode hits, it will probably actually be um, during Nurses Week. So, happy Nurses Week to everybody out there. And don't forget to also thank those wonderful uh, medics, techs, and PSAs that are helping us out. Without them, we wouldn't be nearly as effective in our job as we are. So, thank them. Thank your peers uh, or your fellow students if you're still in school Um, You guys all deserve it. This is a fantastic profession, and I wish you guys all the best. Bye-bye for now.